0: This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson, bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis.
1: The Church must not follow Pope Francis' left turn into the future. As Pope Francis ages, he appears to become more consistent. Normally, that would be a good thing. However, the trend seems to be that the aging pontiff is consistently wrong on every new issue. He appears to be so enamored of radical leftism that he seems willing to take the church down every radical road. Today's podcast will look at three areas in which that tendency manifests itself. First, we bring you an essay from an old friend of the TFP, the Italian historian Roberto Di Mattei. His essay, Pope Francis, The War and the Holy Places, looks at Pope Francis' attitude towards the war in Israel.
0: There was great anticipation over the Synod that opened at the Vatican on October fourth, two 2023. But three days later, on October seventh, international attention shifted to the Middle East, bloodied all at once by the brutal attack on Israel by Hamas. This event, preceded by the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, has constituted a new factor in disturbing the delicate global equilibrium confirming the existence of a war on the West, which, at present, has its epicenter in Palestine, the land where the Redeemer of humanity lived and shed his blood. Pope Francis has spoken out several times to condemn the war, call for the release of hostages, and forestall the escalation of the conflict. But is this all that is to be expected from the Vicar of Christ? Pope Francis could have taken this extraordinary opportunity to let the powerful of the earth hear his voice, together with that of the Synod Fathers gathered in assembly in Rome. What better opportunity to solemnly recall that the reason for wars, like that for all evils, lies in the accumulation of men's public sins, that the ongoing wars are a punishment for the world's estrangement from God and that the only way to achieve peace is respect for natural law and conversion to the gospel. But the Vicar of Christ should also recall that Palestine is the land that was sanctified by the life and death of the Savior, and appeal for the protection of Jerusalem and those holy places which, together with the city of Rome, home of the chair of Peter, represent the heart of the world. The Church has always claimed the right of ownership or custody over the holy places, venerated and made pilgrimage destinations since Christian antiquity. Devotion to the Christian shrines of Palestine began with Constantine, who, after the Council of Nicaea in 325, gave orders to some of the bishops present that they should go to Jerusalem to identify the places of the Passion and Resurrection of Jesus Christ and build churches there. St. Helena, mother of Constantine, also took part in the search for the precious relics. Five basilicas were built, the first on the site of the Holy Sepulchre, a second in Bethlehem over the Grotto of the Nativity, a third on the Mount of Olives where the Ascension of Our Lord took place, a fourth in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the last in Nazareth. We owe to St. Jerome and his group of Roman patriarchs who settled in Bethlehem toward the end of the 4th century the first hospices and lodgings for pilgrims. Thus began a pilgrimage movement, interrupted by the Muslim domination of Palestine, which lasted with alternating phases, until 1917. When, in 1071, the Seljuk Turks conquered Jerusalem, there began a period of persecution against Christians that roused the indignation of Christendom and gave birth to the great movement of the Crusades with the intention of liberating the Holy Sepulchre. At the end of this epic struggle, The Franciscans were made responsible for devotion to the Christian shrines and for their defense, preserving them over the centuries through countless vicissitudes. The mission of the Friars Minor in the Holy Land was regularized both with the two bulls of Clement VI, 1342, and with the pact between the King of Naples and the Sultan of Egypt. The rights of Catholics were confirmed and expanded for three centuries by all the sultans of Egypt, who were interested in commercial relationships with Europe until Palestine was occupied by the Ottoman Turks, who reinstated the oppression. In the same period, Greek Orthodox monks settled in Jerusalem. A long and intractable dispute then began between the Catholic clergy and the Eastern Schismatics, aggravated in the following centuries by the claims of Russia, which asserted rights of protection over the Orthodox region throughout the Levant. In eighteen forty seven, Pope Pius IX restored the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem, vacant since the time of the Crusades. On october eleventh, nineteen seventeen, as the Ottoman Empire crumbled, The English general Edmund Allenby liberated Jerusalem from the centuries old domination of Islam. Out of respect for the Holy City, Allenby and his officers dismounted and went on foot through the Jaffa Gate, accompanied by the military representatives of Italy, France, and England. Christendom rejoiced, but the hopes for a complete liberation of the Holy Land were soon disappointed. In the years in which the State of Israel was born and war was raging between the Jews and Arabs in Palestine, Pope Pius XII dedicated three encyclicals to the holy places. In the first, the Pope recalled that a particular subject keenly affected and distressed his heart. We mean to refer to the holy places of Palestine, which have been long disturbed. Indeed, If there exists any place that ought to be most dear to every cultured person, surely it is Palestine, where, from the dawn of antiquity, such great light of truth shone for all men, where the word of God made flesh announced through the angel's choir, Peace to all men. Where finally, Christ hanging on the cross acquired salvation for all mankind, with arms stretched out as if he were inviting all nations to fraternal harmony, and where he consecrated his precept of charity with the shedding of his blood. In the second encyclical he stated, quote, It would be opportune to give Jerusalem and its outskirts, where are found so many and such precious memories of the life and death of the Savior an international character which, in the present circumstances, seems to offer a better guarantee for the protection of the sanctuaries. It would also be necessary to assure, with international guarantees, both free access to holy places scattered throughout Palestine and the freedom of worship and the respect of customs and religious traditions. Unquote. In the third encyclical, Pius XII renewed his appeal for, quote, The rulers of nations, and those whose duty it is to settle this important question, to accord to Jerusalem and its surroundings a juridical status whose stability under the present circumstances can only be adequately assured by a united effort of nations that love peace and respect the rights of others. Besides, It is of the utmost importance that due immunity and protection be guaranteed to all the holy places of Palestine, not only in Jerusalem, but also in the other cities and villages as well. Not a few of these places have suffered serious loss and damage owing to the upheaval and devastation of the war. Since they are religious memorials of such moment, objects of veneration to the whole world, and an incentive and support to Christian piety. These places should also be suitably protected by definite statute guaranteed by an international agreement. Plans for the international protection of Jerusalem and the holy places were never realized, and the flow of pilgrimages continued in a context of latent conflict. Today, War has exploded in the land where he who was announced by the prophets as the Prince of Peace, see Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, was born and died, and threatens to spread to east and west. But if Christ is not proclaimed by those who should represent him and call humanity to conversion, how can one marvel if the world is risking a war worse than all that preceded it?
1: Another issue in which Pope Francis adopts the leftist line is in relationship to the environment. Actually, Pope Francis goes even further than the leftists because he tries to promote environmentalism as a basic duty for every Christian. Mr. John Horvath discusses this tendency and its implications in his essay Why Pope Francis' Echo-Friendly Apostolic Exhortation Rings Unconvincingly for the Faithful.
0: Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum, is a hard document to characterize. Exhortations are supposed to encourage Catholics in their faith. However, this document deals with ecological issues and is addressed to, quote, all the people of goodwill on the climate crisis, unquote. Thus, the work reads more like an eco-lamentation, a written debate, A United Nations report, not a theological treatise. It breaks all the rules. Lacking are the citations of saints and theologians. Its style can be imposing, allowing for no other climate opinions. The text comments upon recent meetings and events, taking away its atemporal tone and gravitas found in past pontifical pronouncements meant to counsel future generations. Papal documents do not normally get technical, as this one does, with its discussion of carbon emissions, global temperature readings, and climate statistics. This document is not original. It was announced as a second part of the Pope's earlier environmental encyclical, Laudato Si. However, this much shorter, 7,500-word supplement has little to add since it quotes the earlier work 19 times. Lodate Deum begins as a lamentation decrying the lack of action on the part of the global community to heed the pontifical 2015 warning. Pope Francis implies that time is running out, Ocean levels are rising, and ice caps are melting. Humanity is responsible for this disaster and must immediately act. It is an angry document, stemming from a failure to convince a skeptical public. One has the impression that the first part is written as if engaged in a personal debate with an unknown, invisible, presumably American climate denier whose rational and scientific arguments are too compelling for the Pope to refute. Indeed, a recent Public Religion Research Institute survey found that only 27% of Americans believe climate change to be a crisis. Among religious Americans, all categories are below one-third of climate believers, with many groups reporting significant drops. Perhaps this is why Pope Francis mercilessly attacks this invisible debater's stands by denouncing those who, quote, deny, conceal, gloss over, or relativize the issue, unquote. The Pope asks his readers to disregard these unenlightened ones. He evangelizes with harsh zeal, calling upon all to convert to the climate change gospel. Pope Francis affirms the reality of climate change with an air of scientific infallibility. Thus, the document is punctuated with phrases like, No one can ignore that. It is verifiable that. Or, It is no longer possible to doubt that. No one can question the climate alarmist dogma, even in its minute details. The scientific doubters, and there are many, including Nobel laureates, receive no accompaniment nor listening on the journey to sustainability. Adding to the gloom is a large section that chronicles the failures of the various UN climate conferences, known as COPs, over the decades. He dates his message by mentioning the coming COP28 conference in Dubai, which is also probably doomed to fail, as an opportunity to enact meaningful change. To do this, Pope Francis insists that the present, quote, international politics are insufficient to deal with the climate problem, unquote. Therefore, he cites his 2020 encyclical Fratelli Tuti, calling for some w- form of world authority regulated by law, quote, Equipped with the power to provide for the global common good, the elimination of hunger and poverty, and the sure defense of fundamental human rights. Many critics question this vague global framework, invested with immense powers that seem to trump national sovereignty or religious connection. They know well that opening this Pandora's box might lead to greater problems especially when implemented without a moral conversion of its leaders to God and His Church. The exhortation attempts to give a spiritual side to the problem. However, bereft of supernatural content, the document's naturalistic vision is a vague command for people to unite themselves with nature. Human life is, quote, "...incomprehensible and unsustainable without other creatures." Absent is an appeal to God's loving providence to provide for human needs, intervene on behalf of the faithful, and thus avert climate disaster. There is no mention of the Blessed Mother, the angels and saints, as part of the reality of human life and to which one might have recourse. There is no mention of sanctification, which should be a central theme of any apostolic exhortation, not carbon footprints. Many other aspects of the document could be analyzed. However, one important characteristic that fails to convince Catholics deserves to be mentioned Throughout the appeal, one senses ideological threats that weave their way into the document's narrative to present a determined message outside the scientific framework. Pope Francis has labeled conservatives as the evil followers of ideologies, and yet in this document can be found many modern ideologies that are so much a part of the Catholic left's agenda. Traces of class struggle... Liberation Theology, Naturalism, Deep Ecology, Anti-Market Rhetoric, and Indigenism Unite to form an ideological foundation for the document's message to the world. Some Catholics find the text unconvincing due to an anti-Western and off-puttingly anti-American focus that attacks certain modern abuses together with many elements of order and progress. The apostolic exhortation elicits a feeling of sadness for what is missing. To please all people of goodwill on the climate crisis, the document fails to offer the Church's wisdom. One expects biblical and religious references, citations of the saints, and moral principles. Not UN boilerplate. The Church has so much to offer in the realm of stewardship and love of God's creation. Indeed, the Church is best equipped to deal with any true ecological crisis. The faithful living in accordance with Church moral teaching and natural law will necessarily be the best stewards of the earth. Christian civilization is the best possible solution to any ecological crisis since it is mindful of God's creation and humanity's central role to dominate it wisely And virtuously. The tragedy of the apostolic exhortation is that it neglects to do what it is supposed to do encourage the faithful in the practice of virtue and love of neighbor. It gets involved in technical and scientific arguments that are best left to experts in the field. It forces the unconvinced faithful to the sad situation of defending themselves against those on the left who might use the papal document to advance their subversive agenda.
1: Even with all of his other errors, Pope Francis' greatest lapse is in the area in which his background should make him an expert—the state of the Church. He is old enough to have seen the decline of the Church after Vatican ii Yet, he persists in making the same errors that his superiors made in the days of his young manhood. In fact, his lapses of judgment are even worse because he can see the results of the mistakes of the 60s and 70s. He also has the examples of the so-called mainline Protestant sects whose declines have been even more rapid as they embrace the same liberal ideologies that Francis finds so attractive. Mr. Edwin Benson makes one such comparison in his essay, Pope Francis' Synodal Path Mimics the Anglican's Route to Self-Destruction.
0: One of the most effective idioms in the English language is the simple phrase, the blind leading the blind. Surely no act could be more foolish. The phrase has its basis in Scripture. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 14, Our Lord tells us, let them alone, they are blind, and leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Surely, no idiom could better describe the danger along the way of the synod on synodality. Synodality is not new. Others have tried it before and suffered from its blind leading the blind outcome. This scenario was especially played out before in the Anglican Communion. In the book, The Synodal Process is a Pandora's Box. Authors Jose Antonio Ureta and Julio Laredo de Izque quote former Anglican Bishop Gavin Ashenden, ex-chaplain to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Now a Catholic convert, he points out that the Church of England embarked on its particular synodal way in the 50s. His testimony is noteworthy. Quote, Ex-Anglicans believe that they can offer some help because they have witnessed the ploy of synodality used in the Church of England to such diverse and destructive effect. The fact that the ex-Anglicans have seen this trick played on the Church before, it is part of the spirituality of the progressives. Very simply put, they wrap up quasi-Marxist content in a spiritual comfort blanket and then talk a lot about the Holy Spirit, Anglicanism can be difficult to explain. In Great Britain, it is called the Church of England, the fruit of King Henry VIII's apostasy. In the United States, it is known as the Episcopal Church. In the rest of the world, especially those places once part of the British Empire, the more inclusive term Anglican is common. In my youth, I was an Episcopalian. The parish to which I belonged was full of old wood, old stained glass, old words, and old music. The liturgy and vestments appeared magnificent. However, the antique surroundings concealed a radical spirit. The clergymen and later clergywomen who wore those vestments, were often admitted socialists. They proclaimed the eternal verities through the liturgy, but were quite willing to campaign in favor of abortion and the Equal Rights Amendment. Indeed, they thought these activities were quite virtuous. In 1986, I could no longer stomach the Episcopalians' failure to take a stand against abortion. Later, of course, they did, on the other side. I leapt over the Tiber and became a Catholic. I thank God for the grace he gave me to make that decision. Many other Episcopalians did the same thing over other issues. There were plenty to choose from. Beliefnet crunched the numbers. From 1992 to 2002, the number of Episcopalians plunged 32% from 3.4 to 2.3 million. This was not a fluke. As of 2021, the Episcopal Church claims 1.62 million members in the United States. What could account for the loss of over half of its membership in three decades? To answer that question, Beliefnet turned to Charlotte Allen, a frequent contributor to many publications, including First Things, the Weekly Standard, and the Wall Street Journal. Quote, The accelerating fragmentation of the strife-torn Episcopal Church USA, in which large parishes and entire dioceses are opting out of the church, isn't simply about gay bishops, the blessing of same-sex unions, or the election of a woman as presiding bishop. It is about the meltdown of liberal Christianity. As all but a few diehards now admit, the mainline churches that have blurred doctrine and softened moral precepts are declining and, in the case of the Episcopal Church, disintegrating, The article pointed to New Hampshire's retired Anglican bishop, V. Gene Robinson. Before he took office, Mr. Robinson had deserted his wife and children in favor of living openly in a homosexual relationship. Even the New York Times spoke of the resulting rift in 2006. Quote, Bishop Robinson's consecration drew a virulent response from primates of fast-growing Anglican provinces in the developing world where homosexuality is taboo. Many in Africa, Asia, and Latin America have curtailed their interaction with the American Church. A few traditionalist congregations in this country have placed themselves under the oversight of foreign bishops. Unquote. The following year, the Times revisited the issue. Quote, Traditionalists at home and abroad assert that the Bible describes homosexuality as an abomination, and they consider the Episcopal Church's ordination of Bishop Robinson as the latest and most galling proof of its rejection of biblical authority. Despite the controversy, Mr. Robinson continued in his office until retiring in 2013. In many places... The Episcopalian's beautiful outward shell remains, a relic in a liturgical museum. However, disconnected from the breath of life, it slowly disintegrates. British conservative Milani Phillips quotes a study of 1,200 Church of England clergy. Fully three-quarters of them believe that Britain is no longer a Christian country. Celia Walden of The Telegraph quotes the same survey, saying that most clergy are quite willing to use their empty church buildings for yoga classes, exhibitions, concerts, cafes, and post offices. She continues, It's ironic that, as a secular society, we've thrown ourselves into the cult of self, precisely because we're flailing, with no basic spiritual scaffold to keep us steady. The idea of being handed out nourishment in the form of the body and blood of Christ is ridiculed, but we will guzzle down our green juices and superfoods in the hope that they will give us what our empty souls are lacking and ensure an eternal, if spiritually devoid, life. It's all about wellness in the Church of Me. The Canadian situation is even worse. In 2020, the Anglican Journal carried an article that should have spread panic throughout the communion. In a report to the House of Bishops, Anglican clergyman Neil Elliott made a startling prediction based on statistical analysis. We've got simple projections from our data that suggest that there will be no members, attenders, or givers in the Anglican Church of Canada by approximately 2040. Anglican primate Linda Nichols was nonplussed. Quote, Anyone who's been in the church, in the pews, or as a priest, or as a deacon, or a bishop, has known that this decline has been happening. We see it every Sunday. We see it in lots of ways. Unquote. Typically, when looking over such declines, liberals don't see any fault in themselves. Primate Nichols is sanguine in the presence of a condition that should shake her to her bones. Quote, At the end of the day, when we stand before the great judgment seat and have to answer for how we lived our lives as Christians, I think the question that will be asked is. Were you faithful with what you were given? So what is the liberal solution? Like the Marxist who refuses to acknowledge the failure of communism, the answer never changes. Do more of the same. Just do it better. They want more food banks, more social action, more criticism of the wealthy, more liberal activism, more, more. More. That is the same direction that appears along the synodal path. Progressives seem to see the modern church's depopulation as a kind of growing pain, that more liberalism, more accompaniment, and more acceptance will correct in due time. They think they can convince the Catholic laity with their sweet words. Indeed, the warning of Gavin Ashenden is prophetic. The Anglican version of the Synodal Way led to self-destruction. Catholics should pay attention. Blinded by their ideology, progressives claim that those who stand for eternal truths are the ideologues. They seem willing to sacrifice eternal truths for the evolving norms of modernist social justice. This so-called path must be rejected.
1: This concludes the Church must not follow Pope Francis's left turn into the future. Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe through your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with a most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.